The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Okay, here we go. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the evening and we are thankful for your word. Thankful for the fellowship of saints. Thankful for your spirit that dwells in us. Who wrote the word and dwelling in us is able to be our teacher. And uh, we are just thankful that we now can look at your word, read it for ourselves, that uh, none of these people have to sit here and believe what I say. They can look at your word and they can test it against the, uh, against what is written here and uh, say, yeah, this is true or, or no, we need to go back and consider this again. Uh, help us always to be those that uh, want to stick to what your word says, no matter what uh, uh, popular teaching, old-fashioned teaching, whatever it might be has said to us that we would stick with what your word says because, well, then that's your word. It's your opinion. It's what you've said, and that's the most important thing. We thank you for it. Amen. Okay. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We spent... Okay. John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we're going to go back up to verse 33. We've we've spent, I don't know, I, if I counted up, three or four weeks looking at the new command, and we could have spent a lot longer because uh, if you didn't, if you weren't listening to Kevin, I don't know when he shared this over the weekend, but he uh, on their Sunday morning services, he started last spring talking about love, and he's still talking about love every Sunday. He's doing studies on love, and uh, the man that Josh and I had for theology, he he would share with a, with our other pastor at the church, he would share Wednesday nights. And he had been doing a study on love. When I, when I arrived there in 1986, in the fall of 86, he was already doing a study on love. And all three years that we were there, he every Wednesday night did another edition on a study on love. I mean, it's that big of a topic. I mean, it is of the Parts of the fruit from the Spirit, it is the most predominantly mentioned one in the New Testament. And then there's places where you don't even have the word mentioned. But you, but if you read it, you'd go, oh, it's talking about love. You don't get it. You wouldn't even need anybody to tell you that. And we, he just, so there's a lot to be said. And because that is our command in those verses in 30, 34 and 35, because that's, that is the marching orders for the church, is to love each other. And you heard Kevin this weekend. I just... This is one of the reasons I like to bring somebody in that that I'm not going to have to uh, do a lot of cleanup after they're here. Is that, I mean, you heard what you heard what Kevin said. You and I are not told to love the world, and yet this is exactly what dominates the church, probably around the world, but in America. So we're told to be loving all those people. We're supposed to be loving here. You can do good to them, and you can be kind to them, but you're not told to love them. And that and it totally turns the whole mission of the church on its ear and what you're doing. And so this is, anyway, all that just to say, that's why we spent some time on it, and we still blitzed through it and did not do that topic justice, I'm sure. But we're trying to kind of uh, get an overview of what Jesus is saying here, because he introduces so many key truths. But if, before he gives a new command, we're going to read in verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little longer. And you will look for me, or seek me, <clears throat> you will look, uh, seek me, and as I said to the Jews, 
because he'd already told these other people, we've seen this previously here in the, in the Gospel of John. So now I'm saying to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Then he gives a new commandment. In verse 36, and Simon Peter says to him, Lord, explain to us this new commandment. This is intriguing. No. So, Lord, where are you going? I think, seriously, when you read this, it's almost like Jesus says he's going away, and Peter's like, and Jesus is talking about the new commandment, and he doesn't even hear it. He doesn't even hear the new command. He is so shaken by this idea that Jesus is leaving, that he doesn't even, he misses, he misses the new command. And so he says, where, where are you, uh, Simon Peter says, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you're not able to follow, but you will follow, or you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And then Peter says to him, Lord, why am I not able to follow you now? Why, I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered him, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you that absolutely not will the, croc, will the cock crow until you have denied me three times. We all know this from the other gospels, but we have that here. We're not here to, we're not here to talk about that so much, but just as, an, just as an aside, and I have to silence my phone if it's going off here. There we go. Now it's quiet. It's just the girls talking back and forth. I always wonder what people listening in, when they tune into the podcast afterwards and thing that line, they're going, what in the world's this guy talking about? Anyway. But um, the, the reason that Peter, the reason, I, I really think Peter really was going to lay his life down for him. I don't think Peter is stupid when he says this. And the best evidence of it is, is that when you go in, when you go to the Gospels, when that crowd of people come out to the garden to take to take um, Jesus, what does Peter do? Yeah, he pulls his sword, takes it out. Now, let's put this in context. What we're told in the Gospels is a spira of of soldiers come out there. A spira with six hundred soldiers. And everybody goes, wow, they didn't send 600 soldiers out there to Jesus. But what was what was what were the Jews telling Pilate that Jesus was? A pre what? He was against the government. Yeah, a pretender to the throne, one claiming to be a king. And Pilate had to take that very seriously because there had been other people. We're, we read about him in the New Testament, other people that had raised up rebellions trying to rebel against Rome. And they weren't just like one guy. It was a guy that would get a following. And so they're probably going out there. They might have taken 600 soldiers along with the temple police because they had that's where these people were. And they might have brought 600 soldiers out there. So would you imagine, here's Jesus and 11 guys with him. They're not trained soldiers. He got some fishermen. You got a tax collector. You got these, these are guys, you know. And he comes and he pulls his sword out <laughs> and doesn't just pull it out and like threaten him. He actually strikes the servant of the high priest, Malchus, takes his ear off. He connects. Peter was pretty, that's pretty bold in the face of 600 plus soldiers. I would say that's stupid, but some would say, oh, that was very bold and brave. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but what happens in between? Just as, just kind of filling in a detail here without going to all the texts, because it's not our main point tonight. What else happened with Peter that John does not record for us here? He gets scared. He what? He gets scared. 
And he gets scared. And why does he get scared? Because he's sifted by Satan. Because he's sifted by Satan. Remember? We, I think that's in Luke. And again, that's not our topic tonight. But, but yeah. So like sifting like wheat. It's, a worry. it's to thrash out wheat like this. And what Jesus says, Satan has asked for all of you, plural, to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter. In other words, he's not going to be able to sift all 11 of you disciples. I'm not going to let him do it. But I'm going to let him sift you. That's why you're going to deny me. You're going to go through the mill, Peter. This is going to be a tough night. And he does. And that's why he's brave in the garden. But then when he gets up there to the high priest. Yeah, but when he gets to the high priest thing and they're going. And it's just a girl. It's a girl that's serving up there. Serving girl going, hey, you're, you're one of his people, aren't you? No, no, not me. You know? And then a guy goes, I think I've seen you. You sound like a Galilean. Apparently they had a. Galilean drawl version of, of Hebrew. And then uh, and then another girl up there says, yeah, yeah, I've seen you among his people. No, absolutely not. I swear on heaven that I don't know the man. Well, it says he swore, so that meant he had to take some sort of an oath to, you know, we'd say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, I don't know him. You know, that's the thing we did as kids. But he's take some sort of an oath. But just trying to put it in perspective, <laughs> But Peter's just really shaken by this statement that you're going away. So then we move down to verse 1 of chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be agitated. You believe in God. Believe also in me. So here's the question. What does that mean? You believe in God. Believe also in me. What, what's he telling him to do when he says that? Believe in the Father and in him. That's true. Is there any more breadth to that answer? What? Believe that Jesus is God. Now here's a question. Did his disciples believe that Jesus was God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Matthew, Matthew 16, he says, who did men say that? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You and I don't appreciate that. If I were to look and say, say, Clayton, son of Jeremy, or Daniel, son of Lewis, we, none of us would go, oh, equal, equal to that father. But it meant that in their culture, and they understood that. The Gospel of John has demonstrated that. To claim to be the son made people pick up rocks to stone him because he was blaspheming. Josh? I would say it's not just believing that he's God, but God gave you promises, and I'm going to give you promises. I want you to believe in me just like you believe in the promises from God the Father all through the Old Testament. But I'm about to give you, he's prepping what he's going to say in this next chapter. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a dump load of promises, and you believe in me just like you believe in God. Right. That's what's behind these promises. Yeah. Is that word into me, right? Believe into me. Yeah. I am going to be, I'm going to be the direction of your faith. It's very interesting because, yeah. Because faith, faith takes its object, believe this, it usually takes its object in the um, genitive case, 
which is weird if you learn the basics of Greek. But here in this case, because he wants to use the accusative as the object, he uses the ice preposition to indicate you're, you're believing into me. I am the focus of what you're doing here. Now, Do you hate because of here? What? Do you hate because of? Do I think it should be because of? I don't. I don't think that. I don't think they're believing because of the father. I do think that they're directing faith into these individuals, uh, in this. But I was saying because of. Oh, me. oh, because, because of me. me. Yeah. yeah. Believe, believe what I say because it's me. Oh, okay. I, you I believe in me as God, and what I say. Now you believe that because it's what I say. Okay. I probably was not hearing you because I thought you were saying, do you hate because of? No, yeah. yeah. You were saying that. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Modern idiom. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No. Um, this is one of the things, and, and, uh, uh, and um, Kevin and I had this conversation this last weekend because you, because Kevin, Kevin recited a definition that Josh and I learned when we went to seminary and I heard Kevin recite it a couple of different times. But there are two Greek words for doctor. What are those? We've gone over. Didaskale and didake. Didake. Believed and practiced. And didaskalia. Oh, good. You guys gave me the bad definition. To <laughs> know. It's to know it. And that's what I told Kevin. I said, we did that. But I said, when I did this study on faith back a few years back here, one of the things I was thinking about is faith always is connected with a with a promise. Faith isn't just I don't just I don't believe in creation. I don't believe in creation. The Bible never says anywhere that you believe in creation. If you believe in it, that means there's a promise attached to that that I'm supposed to accept. I'm supposed to believe that promise so that I can function or act upon this. And that's not what I'm doing. When I believe the gospel, what's the purpose? I'm believing the promise that because of Jesus' death for my sins, his burial and his resurrection, I can be forgiven and right with God. See, that's the promise. I can be forgiven and right with God. I'm not just believing a set of facts. Like I told you, my brother-in-law will tell you this, Peg's brother-in-law, I should say. He'll tell you, growing up in the Catholic Church, most good Catholics will tell you what the gospel is. But it is a set of facts separate from salvation. Because salvation for them is by baptism, sacraments, good works. It is not by faith alone. So they add all this stuff. It's faith plus. And so you're believing in those promises. You're believing in those promises. So, so having said that, so in other words, the def, I think the better definition for didascalia, just for clarity, and we've talked about this here at church, but it's, it's, it's a tough one to learn, is that didascalia is truth that you accept to be valid. Did God create? Yeah. Did God flood the earth in the days of Noah? Yeah. Did, did, whatever, David, thank you. I couldn't even think of his name. Did David sling a stone at Goliath? And yeah, I accept that. That's true. I don't question that at all. Yes. Is he going to come back? Is who going to come back? Jesus. Is Jesus going to come back? Now that is a promise. Yes. See, now that's a promise. And that's actually what this is all going to be related to, that Jesus is going to come back. That's a promise for us that he's going to talk about here. And we won't believe it after it happens anymore. Yeah, you won't have to, because it's done. Faith yeah. is always future. Yeah. Like, I do I have, let's put it this way. 
Once you believe the gospel for salvation and you're forgiven, you don't you, believe it again. Yeah, because you're forgiven. You don't have to get up every day and get re-forgiven. That, by, by the way, you know what that is? You may not know that, but did you know that that's Catholic theology? Because Catholic theology says that the moment you believe, you're forgiven. But you have to continue to believe to be forgiven each and every day. Otherwise... Well, it doesn't have to do with something with when you believe that it has... You believe once with the result that it continues on in belief. Yeah, it's not like I quit believing. It's not like I go, oh, I'm not forgiven anymore, although some Christians get messed up with that because of bad teaching. But yeah. So when he's saying you believe in God, what what was Josh saying a little bit ago? You guys remember? Yes, that God has made promises. I would even say promises Jesus has been talking about during his earthly ministry that we have recorded in the Gospel of John. But now he says, but now believe in me. He just told them that he's going away. What did that do to him, according to the first part of verse 1? What? Yeah, they're troubled. They're all agitated. They're like, what? How can you leave? What was their expectation? What was the expectation of these 11 guys? That he would go on the throne. So... Let's just take a, let's take a look at some of these things before we move on. Go over to Matthew chapter 18. Good review of this stuff. And by that he would go on the throne, that he would be political power. Yeah. Political. Yeah, not thrown in. The promise that was made in Matthew 1, that it was Matthew his birth, that he would be on the throne of his father David. Hmm. And rule forever. I could see where that would be confusing. So Matthew 18, verse 1. As they're anticipating, as they're expecting this. As they're expecting... Well, keep your finger here. I should, I should have done this first. I don't have this in my notes. Turn back to chapter 16. This We already referenced this, but it's a good... Sorry, Matthew 16? Matthew 16, yes. In verse 13, Matthew 16, 13, and I, I, again, that was something I was really thankful for with Courtney and, and uh, Kevin because they were always telling you to turn to a verse and then they were backing up 10 or 12. <laughs> 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 Made me feel better because I'm always doing that too. Let's back up, get some context. Anyway, verse 13. Verse 13. But Jesus, having come then into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was then questioning his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Well, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, so this is popular opinion floating Wait, around. Hold on, sorry. Yes. Back up. You just read, 14. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? No, he, he read that wrong. Oh, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, is? No. Who do people say that you the have the word I? Oh, oh, I, I added I, because that's what he's referring to, though. That's how mine is. Mine says I. What? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, Mine says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Yeah, but Jesus is talking. People say that the Son of Man is. Sure, I get that. 
But it, uh, to be real, to be straight with the, the Greek, it's an infinitive verb to be. So it is, who do men say the son of man is or is to be? Okay. But he's talking about himself because they all know that. Yeah. Right. Well, he's going to find out what these guys know. It's that. clarified in verse 15. Right. Yeah. Right, because verse 14, they give the popular opinion of Jesus, and then verse 15, he says, but who do you say, who do you think that I am? So now you know who he's talking about. When he said the Son of Man, in verse, uh, asked that question in verse 13, he's talking about himself in verse 15, and they, uh, they get that. And Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ. And I don't know if we've done that in this study, but we've done that many times here at church where we've gone through the Old Testament to look at the places where Christ occurs. And if they would have read their own scriptures, they would have understood that Christ was going to be divine. He was going to be a man. He was going to sit on David's throne. The father would call him God and the father would address him about his throne and that he would be also a prophet, which in the Old Testament, a prophet and a king could not be the same person because they were from two separate tribes and it was wrong. In fact, one time when the king tried to act in that role, priest, not prophet, priest, when the king tried to operate in the priest role, Saul got himself into trouble and God essentially ousted him from the throne for doing so. So prophet, priest, and king. Right. That's right. So why would they just name the people? Well, because this is what people were guessing. Oh, you're John the Baptist. In other words, because even Herod thought that. This is, this is John the Baptist came back from the dead. Because he couldn't figure out who this Jesus was when he heard all the miracles of Jesus. There must be Jesus come back from the dead. And some of them think, well, he's Elijah, because the Old Testament promised that Elijah would return. Okay? And so some of them think, oh, you're Elijah. And some of them even took the guess, well, maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But he says, who do you say I am? Verse 16, Simon says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Son of God meaning you are deity without question. Son of the living God. And then, G and then Jesus says to him, replies to him, happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, the one who is in heaven. In other words, you got this not because people took you through a class. You could bring, you could collect, you could fill this room. We could go to the high school and fill the gymnasium with tables and chairs. And we could go over a class on who the Bible says Jesus Christ is. And we could lay out all the biblical evidence. And you know what? The only people that will get it are those that the Father has revealed it to. Those that, as Paul puts it, are cho chosen. And I had this conversation with somebody just a couple weeks ago, and and that person understood that person that they actually brought that very issue up. But it is sometimes kind of a hard issue for some people to to swallow. But the but the evidence of scripture is, in fact, I think we did Ben demonstrate. I, I was going to put some stuff up here tonight, but I don't want to erase any of Ben's notes because <laughs> that class has been so good, and I don't want him to have to put stuff back up there again. In fact, Kevin was commenting on the notes up here and going, "Wow, that looks like good stuff." Anyway, but. Uh, but he was, we were going over that a couple weeks ago, and I don't remember who I was thinking it was Leslie, but it might have been somebody else that pointed out God didn't kick man away from him. What did man do? Man went and hid. <laughs> Where are you, Adam? Why are you hiding? Well, I <laughs> saw I was naked. and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, it, what? Yeah, they start pointing fingers, yeah. 
but man's man's for for the six thousand years that man's been on earth since Adam and Eve sinned, men have been trying to hide from God. God's not trying to hide from them. God makes Himself out there. What is what does David write in Psalms that the heavens shout all day and all night that God exists, and yet Peter tells us they don't want to see it. So here. Peter, uh, here Peter just cites this, and Jesus says, you got it, you got it, because the Father revealed it to you. Now, the reason we come over here and look at this is just to remind ourselves that, yeah, these people were expecting to be the Christ, but the other part of Christ in here, when he says the Christ, is for them, that meant, one of the things that it meant was that he was the king. He was the anointed king. And that was very important that they understand that. So back over to chapter 18. So at this point... Oh. not the risen one. Yes, that does not happen until Acts 2. That, yeah. Peggy's asking, you know, because the title Christos, uh, Peter, God uses Peter to change the definition. Christos, let's put it this way. Christos means anointed. That's all that term means. But what anointed for what? From the Old Testament perspective, it was anointed to be the king. But when you get to the book of Acts, that all changes. He'd already been Christos. But in, in Acts chapter 2, as Peter says, the Lord has now, you crucified him, but the Lord has now made him Lord and Christ. Wow, in a different sense. So that Christ now emphasizes his resurrected and seated status. Not, not reigning a king, not at the present time. He will one day. Um, Ronnie. So is that um, Old Testament Christ then? Is that different than Messiah? It's the same thing. Messiah is just, see, when people go, oh, Christ means Messiah, I'm like, what does that tell you? It doesn't tell you a thing. Messiah is just the Hebrew word for anointed one. If you were translating it, you wouldn't translate it Christ or Messiah. You'd say anointed one. And it's just funny because one of the Bibles I use sometimes, the CSB, um, they've chosen a number of passages to translate Christos, Messiah. And I'm thinking, you're just taking it back to Hebrews all, but you're still not telling us what it means. That's a controversial verse where they didn't want to be definitive. So they be, they are just say they transliterate it to be ambiguous. Sure. So anybody that reads it can take it however they want. It's the same thing they do with baptism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. That's just how they talk. <laughs> And so let's, okay, let, no, let's just handle it. Because this, all of this hangs on, on their understanding of who this one is, okay, at this point. So, so Peggy's, Peggy's asking the question back there in Matthew 16, 13. Why does, essentially, what is the significance when he says, who is the son of man? And I think we've gone over that. Where would you go to demonstrate what scripture means by the title son of man? What? Daniel, Daniel, 7. Daniel 7. There you go. Okay. So let's go over to Daniel 7. Because that's the way they, because to them, Son of God was a, a, just a clear delineation of deity. Okay. When they were saying it like that. So Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel is, um, 
Daniel's seen these vision of these, these beasts that are representing governments, and they're kind of terrifying him. And then verse 11. It says, and then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. That's a reference to a part of the last beast. That's the man that is popularly but incorrectly called the Antichrist because the Bible never applies that title to him. It's, he's called the beast. He's called the willful king. The king called the man of lawlessness. So anyway, we've got good biblical terms for what he's called. So verse 11 so this one was uttering boastful words, and I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed, and it was given to the burning fire. But as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. In other words, those there's a remnant from those kingdoms, and Zechariah talks about that, that are going to extend out into the kingdom, but not in their form where they're resisting God. Verse 13, And I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, the clouds of heaven... And one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. This is another person. you got two persons of the Godhead here. This is another one of these. This isn't technically Trinitarian because you only have two persons, but it's one of several passages in the Old Testament that the Trinity is just as plain as can be. You have, to, you have to have your one eye closed or both eyes closed to not see it. He came up to the Ancient of Days and, there was, and was presented before him, and to him then was given glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages might serve him. You understand the significance of serve him? Uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We're talking about the kingdom of God. It's telling you, it, the essence is, if he has this kingdom that never ends, this kingdom that goes on, we always, because I, I grew up in churches like this one, where we were taught about the millennial kingdom. It's called the millennium because that was a Latin word for thousand. But the kingdom's longer than that. The thousand years is for a specific purpose. But the kingdom keeps on going out into eternity. It does not end. We're told that in the book of Luke. And that's who the Son of Man was. So the Son of Man was these ones that the Jews understood was the one that was going to come and be king and in some sense also be God, because he has this unending kingdom. They weren't looking for a, just a man to be king. They, they sh Well, they should have understood, some of them did, that it was going to be God. In fact, we know there were people that were looking for that, because when Jesus is a baby and they take him to the temple, there's two people up there, Anna and Zechariah, and, or Simeon, Anna and Simeon. And they were looking for this. They're anticipating this coming. They're anticipating God sending this one. They're excited about it. And I think it's Anna. I think she's the one that says after she saw the Jesus, then she went off and told the others that were also waiting, indicating there were other people looking for this. But not a lot, because there's only two people that greet Jesus at the temple. Out of all the people milling around. And remember, the temple on a given day probably had hundreds of people at any given time milling around up there. Yes? What's really cool here is verse 14, there was a given him dominion and glory in the kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an age-long dominion and shall not pass away. Tie that to Ephesians 1. 11, and you find out the church is involved in that ring. That's right. That's right. Yeah. But it was a mystery because it's not told about right here. That's right. That's right. 
So, okay. So this is Jesus. Well, it's because he's because he just doesn't come and take the kingdom. The kingdom is actually given to him by the Father. He's the one that comes and conquers, but then the Father is the one that actually grants the kingdom to him. But the Father doesn't give it until he asks. Yeah, that's yeah. There's a lot of other scriptures to put How together. Is How is he presented? Or does he present himself? Is that, is it? Yes, he is comes before. No. I, no. I feel like somebody's here. Here's. No. Jesus, no, because in fact, in reality, I've got a, I've got a cross through the word was in my English text. It's just and presented before him. So he comes and stands there. This is essentially what Josh was just saying. This is out of Psalm two. He presents himself. Yeah. So he comes and says, "I'm I'm here to take my kingdom." Psalm two. He says in the kingdom. He says, "Come and ask the nations for your inheritance. Come and ask the nations." And he comes and asks for him. So let's go back over to Matthew 18 then. Matthew chapter 18. Verses the only reason this hasn't happened is because he's dedicated to the church. That's right. He's, he's doing something for the church rather than asking for his kingdom right now. Precisely. Thank you. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. And it says, In that hour then the disciples approached Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom from the heavens? Do you have a question? He, he could, but the thing is, is he knows, yeah, he knows, he knows God's plan. Because one of the things he has to do is he has to come back and get us first, which is the text in John 13, which is where that's headed. That he's going to come back and get us before he asks for that kingdom. Yeah. So, so there are some things that are in place before he's going to ask for that. And he knows exactly what that is. So they want to know who's the greatest thing. See, these guys are expecting the kingdom of heaven's coming, and we want to know who's going to be greatest of us. I mean, they're here. We're, at this time, remember, there's 12 disciples. Judas, Judas is still part of them, and none of them suspect him of being uh, any less than a regular, than a good disciple. Um, and, but <laughs> they're still focused on this earthly kingdom that all I can think of is like, oh, which one of us is going to be the favorite? Which one of us is going to be the best? You know, you're the king, yeah. But we want to know, well, wait till the next passage we get to, and you'll see the next thing. But what does Jesus says? And having called the child, he set him in their midst and said, Truly I say, unless you become changed or turned around and you become like a child, you'll not even enter into the kingdom from the heavens. You know, the kingdom of heavens is not about seeking greatness. It's about being like a child that's willing to accept exactly the way Jesus said it and the way it is. Just think of how accepting a child is of stuff. So when, you know, anyway, I could chase a rabbit trail with that, but I'm not going to. Sorry. Mark 10. Let's go over to Mark 10. Does anybody have a question here before we push on to Mark 10? What's the, I think, there's some people who don't know what's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom from the heavens, that comes out of Daniel also. It's where the heavens are ruling over the earth. And right now, if you want to say that the kingdoms are ruling, if the, if the heavens are ruling over the earth in the way that we're told in Daniel and in Matthew, then I can guarantee, I'm probably going to have this spiked off of the internet now if I put this up, but Biden would be out and Putin would be out. And any, any other crook would be And the reason I'm saying this is because exactly what Jesus said. He'd send angels out and they would be taking all those things out of his kingdom. But because there is unrighteousness in this world, it's an evidence he's not sitting on his throne. Don't you blame this mess on him. 
This is a mess because he is he 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 is he is in a distant governing sense. I shouldn't say distant. That gives you the wrong impression. He is still involved in the details of your life, but the world itself, he's largely hands off. He's letting them make a mess of this system, and he's going to make let them make even more of a mess of it before this is done. And again, that's contrary to what you hear in much of Christianity today. I'm not even going to blame that on Christendom. Christians, genuine believers, make a lot of mess of that. And they they think that, anyway. Contrast to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the realm of salvation, clearly. Jesus says that in John, John 3. He says, you can't even see the kingdom of God if you're not born from above. You can't enter it. You can't even see it. Or even if you include the angels, then it's the realm of those that are right. willingly subject to him. That's right. Yeah, so for us, it includes salvation in the way we conduct ourselves, but it's broader than that, yeah. Okay, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Tim always says aspirations are getting so much more, and then I chase rabbit trails, so I'm sorry. Mark chapter 10. Verse 37. Now this is going to go right along with what we just saw with this question about who's going to be the greatest. And so we go to verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him, saying to him, Teacher, we wish that you would do whatever we might ask you. And he said to them, Well, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And they said, Well, grant us that one will sit out from your right hand and one of us will sit out from your left hand. In other words, they're, they're what are they thinking of Jesus sitting on a, and there being helpers? Yeah, that's a. I, I've told you this before. If you ever get a chance to stop at the Marinhill Museum on the main floor on the southwest southwest corner of that building, Mary Hill, the Mary Hill Museum. Sorry. Yeah. Uh -huh. right. And I can guarantee you, if you take your kids, it'll be a real fast trip through there. It always was with ours when our girls were young. <laughs> it's when we were all older, then we enjoyed kind of poking along in there. Although there is fun stuff that kids like to see too. Anyway, back to the main study. But in that southwest corner, there is the throne of Maria, Queen of Romania. And it's a five-seat throne. Her throne is the big tall one in the corner and two seats out on either side. And that was all her throne. And it was given to Sam Hill by because he was he'd become friends with uh, Queen Maria. She gave that to him, and so this was something they understood. They understood you had a throne, and you had sometimes would have seats that were sitting that were connected directly to it, or at least were <coughs> seated right up next to it. And you grant this position to these people, and to be granted there isn't just that you're going to be sort of associated. It's like you're a consultant. It's like, hey, what should we do about this? What do we, what do, we do about this guy? I mean, so in other words, it's like. They're the bigwigs in the kingdom. This is what they want. I mean, to say who's greatest in the kingdom and the last thing, greatest in the kingdom means, well, I'm, I'm kind of in charge. You know, at least somewhat in charge. This is what's going on. Everybody gets that, right? Yeah. Now let's go over to Acts chapter 1. Now this is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and this so this is during the forty year, forty days. Pardon me, forty days between his resurrection and his ascension. And as he's been, and uh, scriptures tell us that he was moving about with his disciples, appearing, coming, and going with them. He wasn't always with them during all of this time, but it says in verse six. Therefore, they were coming to him. 
and they were questioning him. And this word, if you are looking at the different words for asking communication, this is eratao. This is the word to ask as equals, which is really amazing. They are coming and they are asking for something as an equal. Now, I don't think they come up and say, we want to eratao you something, which would not be good Greek anyway, but you get the point. That's not what they're doing. But what, but what Luke is telling us is they're kind of presuming their authority to ask on a level that really is not theirs to ask. In fact, eventually when we're going through the upper room, Jesus is going to tell them, you're not going to ask like this anymore. You're going to have a different way that you're going to ask. And my thought on this, how do we know they were asking at that level? Only because only because Luke uses this word. Because the Holy Spirit told them they were asking in this realm because Jesus knew. Oh, because how they were asking. Yeah, because Jesus. No way a human would know. Just asking a question, but Jesus knew you're asking as an equal here. Right. Right. It's also in tone. You can tell if somebody comes to you and they say, "Hey, can I?" That's one way. Hey, are we gonna? Right. You're telling them I want this to happen. You're not saying, uh, I'm obviously lower than you, and I'm asking uh, from your benevolence to help me. Right. And there's a, there's a difference just in tone. That's right. So it goes on. So, so, they, so they came together, and they asked him, we're asking him, saying, Lord, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, you look at that, and that just looks like just a question. But in the Greek... This question starts with a conditional particle I. That's an if. It's, a, it's an if that you would use normally with a first class condition, which is the word that they, the form of the word they used. And this they use a, that word restore. That's a present active indicative. So this is an indicative condition. And when you in Greek ask questions, if you ask them with the first part of a conditional sentence like this, you are saying, this is the way you'd be asking. It'd be like, Peg, when you go to the store, you're bringing ice cream home, right? <laughs> I'm not asking her whether she's going to bring ice cream home. I am asking as a question, are you bringing ice cream home, right? That's, it's assumed you're going to do it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So in other words, his disciples, they assume he's going to go, yeah. That's the very nature of this, this first part of this question. And Jesus, right? So in other words, even after the death, burial, and resurrection, they're not going, oh, we're on to the next thing now. The kingdom isn't going to happen. We're going to start the church. They have no clue. They don't know what this church is. They don't know what the body of Christ is. They have no clue. Even though Jesus has talked a little bit about it in the upper room, these guys are clueless. In fact, a lot of the key things about how we live, they're not going to learn until Paul comes along. That's right. I can totally see that. Huh? Yeah. So, and you think this is the best king in the world because, I mean, they can't kill you. They can't kill you. Yeah. You go along with what Robin's saying. The way I take this first, this kind of first part of a first class condition, I think it's just Jesus cutting him off. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's not it. Stop right there. Yeah. There's it's, a, not, it's not for you to know. 
There is about, and I have them written down in here, one, two, three. I've got four written down there, at least four places where you have this first first part of, the, we call it fancy words, protasis. You don't need that. It's the first part of a conditional sentence that we have in Acts. There's more in the book of Acts, and they're all questions. Because that's the way in Greek, that was the way you asked a question where you were asserting, you're going to tell me yes. Because there was a way you could ask questions with a particle that expected a yes and a no. But this was a stronger way of saying, you're going to do this. See? And that's what they're doing. They are really presuming that. So as they're going on with this, they probably have something that they want to follow with. And this is, I think, where Josh would, would, is going with this. They want to say something more. And Jesus stops them right away and said, it is... It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. By the way, contrast that to Second Thess or First Thessalonians five one, where Paul said, "You know the times and the seasons." So it's different for them than for us. There's things you know about the future that his disciples didn't know, know about the future. Okay, uh, he says, "Which the Father is set by His own authority." But you will receive. In contrast to knowing the times and the seasons at this moment, you will receive authority when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be witnesses in both Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and as far as the ends of the earth, which is what's going to happen. And I still don't think that they're getting that because flip over to chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Yes. You were just saying that because of that word restore? Yes. Oh, I was just telling I was just telling the tense of that word restore and the fact that it is an indicative verb. It's that's all Greek stuff. And the only reason I'm saying that is because when you put that if in the the if Greek form of the word if, which you don't even see in your English, they just say, Are you at this time? But in Greek there's an if at the beginning of that sentence. And when you combine it with that kind of verb, you are assuming it's an assumed part of a condition. And that's what they were doing. They're, um, if you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, and we know that you are, that's what they were saying. Right. Right. So we come to chapter 3. Come to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Acts 3. We stay in the same book. Acts 3 and verse 19. He says, therefore, repent. This is, this is Peter, by the way, preaching to the Jews. <laughs> they, haven't gone, they haven't gone beyond the they're still in Jerusalem. They're still speaking to Jews. He told them to start in Jerusalem and then go out into Judea and Samaria and the other most parts. Of, and they, they've only done part one. These guys don't want to leave. Okay, God's going to move them out with persecution. And so what does he say in verse 19? Repent and turn, turn around in order that the removal of your sins, in other words, that your sins might be removed or cleansed away in order that the times of refreshment might come from the presence of the Lord, that he might send that, that which has been previously proclaimed to you by Jesus Christ, whom it is necessary that the heavens receive until the times of restoration of all things spoken of, God, spoken of uh, which God spoke, excuse me, through the mouth of his holy, uh, uh, his holy prophets from an age. Okay, took me a little while to, to put all that together, sorry. In other words, Here's Peter, and what is Peter, and I don't know how far we are after the beginning of the church. Are we a month in? Are we a week in? It's, uh, we don't know. But we're not that far into this. We might be six months in. But what Peter is still preaching, and it's okay, but what he's preaching is, is if you Jews would repent, if you Jews would turn around, you know what you would get? 
you'd get this kingdom. This, this kingdom that you guys are looking for, it would be restored to you. Now, what, what's happening here, what you're going to find out, the reason he's doing this is he's allowing these disciples who, have, who had proclaimed the kingdom during Jesus' earthly ministry. Now he's died, has been risen, he's alive, he ascended back to heaven, and these guys have been commissioned to go out, and he allows them to continue telling the Jews about this kingdom to see what? That the Jews really are going to reject the kingdom because they're really still going to keep rejecting this Jesus, even after he's died, and now they're proclaiming his death and his resurrection. They still, they still don't believe it. And the disciples, I think, they really are still thinking, hey, do you guys believe this? Hey, the Messiah would return. The, the anointed king would come back, and the kingdom, the times of refreshment, the times of restoration, they would come, and this would be set up, and you guys would be good. Do you understand why this is so important in, in our having kind of a timeline of what's going on when we're looking at all these things? It just tells you that there was not a quick transition for these people over into what we understand as the church. That transition into what we really understand as a church is happening slowly. When did the church start? Back in chapter 2. Do they all understand and appreciate what that means to be part of the church in the way that you should? No. They're slowly coming into this. Even Peter and John are slowly coming to understand this. In fact, really, it's not until you get later, until you hit Acts 15. Acts 15 is really, I don't mean to digress totally, but Acts 15 is the first time that Peter really understands life by grace. He listens to Paul and Barnabas lay this out in Jerusalem. And what does Peter do? Peter do? As soon as Paul and Barnabas head back to Antioch, Peter hightails it up there to Antioch to get more of this stuff. Peter or Paul tells us that in Galatians. Why? Well, he just heard about a message of grace, and Peter's going, this is good stuff. Because what did he say about the law? We nor our fathers could bear it. <laughs> in other words, we've made a mess of ourselves. 1,500 years of our history should prove we were horrible at keeping the law. Okay, anyway. I didn't even get to the fun stuff I want to get to tonight. Anybody have any questions? Anybody have any questions? We'll stop. We went through a lot of, I had that stuff down. I had some other stuff. We'll just come back and get it next week. Does anybody have anything else that you want to ask a question about? Um, can I make a comment? Yes, please do. We, um, arguing Roman history in school with boys, and um, you know, you're talking about why would they send 600 soldiers out to... Um, uh, arrest Jesus. Arrest Jesus. And, you know, you just have these little ragtag fishermen and everything. But just 30 years prior, Spartacus had gone out and gotten 100,000 slaves. So they knew that, it, you yeah. know, they might be not be all trained, but they did a lot of damage. And when they were saying that his, he was going to, they took it seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's one person standing up to the bully, and all of a sudden everybody jumps in. Yeah. All those failed governors during that time were also put to the sword by Caesar for failing. Yeah. So. Yeah, and Pilate does not want to be put to the sword. That's a good yeah. point. Yeah. 
Because if Pilate lets this fall on his watch, <laughs> he's going to be punished for it. Yeah. So he takes he, he takes it pretty seriously. I also thought it's pretty interesting that there there's a bunch of stuff that they're missing there, thinking that Peter can promise the kingdom to come because the rapture and everything else that has to happen between then and then. so it's like that's a huge chunk. I mean, that's the church. And but see, they but that's a key thing. They don't know that yet. They don't know that this. <laughs> they do not know that this group is anything different than what it had been. They still largely kind of see themselves as part of part of Israel. It's going to be Paul that's going to have to come along <coughs> and tell them otherwise. Yep. And the whole thing about the rapture, Jesus predicts the rapture in John thirteen, but as far as they as far as they knew, that was no different than the second coming. They don't fully understand the significance of that yet. It's going to again. That's going to be the apostle Paul coming along that says, "Hey, I'm going to show you a mystery." <laughs> We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed. Josh just went over that with us a couple weeks ago again. So, so they were missing their steward. That's right. God's got to bring somebody else in here to kind of fill in some pieces that they don't all understand yet. But it, interestingly enough, most of what Paul's going to teach is going to actually hang on the things that Jesus introduces in the upstairs room. And if you understand this, you have. That's why we can. That's why we can go off on these other things eventually because there's a lot of things to learn from all of this. And again, it's a reminder, is there value in the Gospels? Absolutely. But if, you know, and Kevin, I don't know how many times he reiterated, and I think it's fresh on his mind, he just got done teaching a class on why the Gospels are not for us as Christians, and, and he just got done doing it, but he said that with us several times over the weekends, again, just reminding us, and I don't, he's preaching to the choir here, I understand that, but the Gospels are not for us, they don't tell us how to live. And yet, what does most of Christianity do? Try to live by what? Try to live by what would Jesus do? Yeah, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus he do? Under lots, yeah. He was born on a lot. Oh, you just, Lewis just asked that question. I was thinking, I was just talking to somebody about that the other day. He says a number of times. I'm not sure. He says, why is he scared? So, okay. With all that, I'm going to end this.